0: Get 60% off at babble.com slash realm. That is spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash realm. Rules and restrictions may apply. All right, Super Nymphrendos, we promised you something special, and here it is. We have Reggie Fizume here to talk to us about his upcoming book. Uh very happy to have you, Reggie. I have never spoken to you and I'm a little nervous, so please forgive me. I'm just I'm a little starstruck right now.
1: Uh no no worries. You know, we won't put you through the ringer too badly here. Okay. I
2: thought you were gonna say there there's a presence I haven't felt since. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Reggie. Good
3: to
1: Welcome. see you again. Yeah, it's been days. Book
3: Reggie, <laughs> um, I'm I'm sorry if this ages you a little bit, but I was in college uh, in e three two thousand four when you were talking, uh, which you talk about at some length in your book, and that was the first time I was introduced to Reggie Fizavade saying, "I'm here to kick ass, take names, and we're about making video games." And I think it lodged in our collective memory. And so I'm just curious, like. How does it feel to look back on this like 15 years at Nintendo? You know, it's uh,
1: it's at times completely startling. Uh, and it's not only looking back at that press conference, it's looking back to the press conference where we shared the Wii, the press conference where we shared Wii Fit, Um, and even the more recent activities where we unveiled a Nintendo Switch to look back on all of these meaningful moments just in the video game space. And then in writing the book, you know, it forced me to think back on some of my other uh, activities things that maybe aren't as visible as my time at Nintendo but things that you know formulated me my management approach so it was um it was quite stunning to look back on uh, on my career today i thought that was one of the things that i really liked about
2: the book was the the kind of prehistory part and how you got to your position at Nintendo and by the way good job cat um quoting Quoting the uh, the famous Reggie sentence correctly, I I never realized the thought that went into deciding whether to say I'm about making games or we're about making games, and and you talk about that at length in the book.
1: It was it was a major issue at the time, and you know, what what people may not realize is when you're gearing up for a big press conference like that, especially my unveiling uh, to the the video game press, every word mattered. And as we were going through rehearsals and I'm closing that initial stanza by saying I'm about making games, it just became more and more clear that it, it wasn't ringing true. I mean, imagine you have Shigeru Miyamoto in the audience, you know, you have all of these other Nintendo game creators listening to this and it's like, you know, that's not right. This, you know, this guy just joined the company. He doesn't write code. He he doesn't, he doesn't do anything regarding games. For him to say I'm about making games just doesn't fit. So we almost scrapped the entire opening uh, of the video conference, and then, if you will, cooler heads prevailed, and we made a couple pronoun tweaks to frame it as we're about making games, not just we, all of the Nintendo developers, but we are business partners. You know, the big. Gaming companies, Activision, EA, etc., that were uh, part of our press conference. But uh, you know what could have been if it would have been if it would have been just a, a different uh, opening altogether.
3: How did you convince Shigeru Miyamoto to have the sword and the shield from the Legend of Zelda <laughs> and to come out on stage with that?
1: Well, so uh, Mr. Miyamoto is a showman. And it didn't take much convincing for him to wear, you know, a Zelda shirt and to come out in Sword and Shield. Didn't take much convincing at all. Just like it didn't take a lot of convincing for uh, in the E3 2006 for him to come out in Top Hat and Tails. So you know, he, he loves uh, the interaction with fans, with media. You know, obviously, he's got a passion for all of the great content he's played a role in so uh, it was an easy sell it was probably the easiest sell of my career getting mr miyamoto to come out and uh, and promote legend of what would become legend of zelda twilight princess i thought the
2: the kind of the the change from your your earlier jobs to nintendo and then kind of bringing out the the showman reggie was was really interesting and you you described that so well in the book do you feel like in your earlier roles you were obviously working on on consumer products that to you being in charge of, you know, the launch of a new pizza type or something, were really exciting. But to people reading that now, everybody's like waiting to get to the Nintendo part. But like, do you feel like you were shackled back in those days, and and working at Nintendo kind of like unleashed the showman, Reggie? Or was was he always Unleash there? Unleash the and,
1: Reggie. Yeah, Unleash <laughs> the Reggie. <laughs> you were
2: know, were it, you doing it, the same thing in the board boardroom meetings?
1: It the uh, it was always there, and what I would also say is that. You know, like like any of us in our professions, it builds over time. So, you know, there needed to be a building over time of confidence in getting up in small group meetings. You know, I talk about in the book, you know, I, I was hired into a job where so many of my peers were five up to 10 years older than I was because I was hired into this role directly out of undergrad at Cornell University, where all of my peers typically had MBAs and other experiences. So there was a building of confidence to be able to stand up and and to provide a point of view. There was a building of confidence to get up in front of, you know, smaller presentation settings of a few hundred people than a few thousand. So it was a building over time. What I would also say is that it was this, magical connection between my own personal capabilities and all of the, uh, uh, oppor- the, the opportunity of playing that role for Nintendo to be able to talk about uh, you know my passions for video games, to talk about what I enjoy doing and to bring that to life was just, uh, it was a magical moment.
3: Yeah. And you had a really unlikely journey to the video game industry. Um, Black man from a a family of Haitian immigrants, and you went to Ivy League schools and you're working at places like Procter and Gamble. You're based on the East Coast, whereas video game industry is primarily based on the West Coast. And a lot of your friends were saying, don't do it, Reggie. Don't (laughs) join the video game industry. What are you doing? Why are you going to Nintendo? But you did it anyway. Um, this kind of unlikely journey to the video game industry is really interesting to me.
1: You know, the, the element that I highlight in the book, and it's something that I continue to do today, I, I, I believe in looking at um, the unique path or the alternative outcome, meaning, you know, doing something that isn't expected, exploring paths that are unique and, and differentiated. And absolutely. At, at the time that I was considering Nintendo, I had a job offer from another company on the East Coast uh, in a completely different industry. And so it, it really was a thoughtful, uh, methodical approach of understanding what was the Nintendo opportunity? Would I be successful? Um, it certainly fit a passion that I had for the, the overall video game space and the entertainment space. But all of my close confidants, my mentors at the time, really counseled me not to take the job. Uh, Mm. It would be far away from family. It it was a completely different industry. And again, the industry in 2003, 2004, uh, much smaller than it is today, uh, a bit more insular uh, than it is today. And uh, thank goodness I didn't listen to all those perspectives. (laughs)
2: I love your story about Link to the Past. For me personally, too, that was one of those games that, you know, I was in college, I played it, and I can honestly say that's what hooked me, got me back into gaming on the on the Super Nintendo, and like it obviously played a huge role in your life as well. Uh, that game, can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Sure, and and I I like it, Pear, how you just aged me, right? I I was playing it, uh, you know, as a junior executive, and you were uh, you were still in school. Um, but, um, you know, I I, I played uh, all types of different uh, video games, pinball games in my youth. You know, the earliest of early video games. Um, in college, I gravitated away from video games, played more pinball and other tabletop games. Then I started a family, uh, got away from, uh, from gaming uh, until I bought a Super Nintendo Entertainment System. And my system came with Super Mario World. Played that uh, to full completion, 99 lives unlocked every single Mm -hmm. element uh, of that game, and then picked up the controller to play Legend of Zelda: Link to the Past, and it truly became a second job to me. I I would play in the evenings with my family, then go off. Uh, I was working at Pizza Hut at the time, come back home, uh, play again, and uh, it 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 really uh, it hooked me. It hooked me from the very start. The problem solving uh aspect of it and in the book i highlight that when i got to the final boss in that game it was you know three o'clock in the morning Uh, i had to get up and go to work and decided to put the controller down decided to get a few hours sleep and then attack it the next day and um, i was playing with my son um, uh, that entire game you know so many of the snes games And he had his own save file, but he would always see how far I had gotten um, before he would start playing on his own save file. And so, you know, that next day, as I'm off at work thinking about the final battle, my son picks up the controller, sees that uh, we're at the final boss, and over the next number of hours, tries to beat the game. And he literally beat the game uh, as I was uh, entering the house from a day of work. I could hear him, you know, screaming with delight. And as soon as I heard his scream, I knew exactly what happened. And you know, my my biggest personal frustration was that it wouldn't be until I played the game again on Virtual Console, probably the Wii Virtual Console, that I finally beat the game and saw the end credits because, you know, that back then, you know, it was only the first time that you beat a game that you would see the the full end credits. So uh, the fun part of this story is that I told it in front of an audience of gaming executives when Shigeru Miyamoto was being honored by uh, the Electronic Software Association at a big industry dinner. And so I, I said this with him in the audience and talked about this entire story and how his games touched me and as i you know sit back at the table after he accepts his award you know he's seated next to me he turns to me he goes reggie san and you know all all of the uh, uh, nintendo kyoto employees called me reggie san so Regisan, san is that story true it's like of course it's true i wouldn't make this mm-hmm. up you know for this event mr miyamoto this is how you touched me this is how you touched my family um, so just you know a wonderful experience, even before I was the Reginator as part of Nintendo. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I really so like your book your story of the first time that you actually met Mr. Uh, Miyamoto. Could you go into that a little bit?
1: Sure, you know, so I joined the company December of two thousand and three, January of two thousand and four, uh, making my first trip to the headquarters, and it's during this trip that we're beginning the prep for e3 2004 so i saw the early art for twilight princess um, and we were having a discussion around uh, what would become the nintendo ds and so imagine you know in this conference room there's uh, a motherboard uh two screens soldered onto the motherboard you know all of the open uh, guts and electronics of the system, and we're getting an introduction to the touchscreen capabilities, the the voice capabilities, and there's probably a group of about twenty of us in a in a circle uh, with the hardware uh, kind of in the middle, uh, and we're having this uh, this detailed conversation, and um, yeah, you know, I'm the new guy but I'm expected to make comments and and uh, and to have a point of view, even though I'm only weeks on the job. And it's because Nintendo of America is the biggest subsidiary of global Nintendo. So I'm asked a, a series of questions about the touchscreen and I'm making comments about how important the touchscreen is. The team starts talking about uh, a game they had in development that would become Nintendogs. And you know, from, you know, the court of my eye, I could see that a latecomer has come into the meeting, but I, I really can't, I didn't turn around to see exactly who it is. But I'm making all of this commentary about, you know, how important it's going to be to talk about the touchscreen, how important it is to promote this game in order to fulfill our vision of expanding the universe of players, which is what we we're trying to do with Nintendo DS. And then I hear a voice in Japanese. Uh, uh, making comments. And the translation uh, at uh, Nintendo is Japanese to English. Uh, You then respond in English. That's put back into Japanese for the Japanese native speaker to understand what you're saying. So, you know, I hear the Japanese voice. I turn and it's Mr. Miyamoto. And literally my knees begin to shake because I know who he is. This is the first time I'm meeting him. And it was fortunate, you know, he, he says, you know, uh, you know, these comments are exactly right. Uh, you know, we need to focus on the touchscreen. We need to focus on on this particular game. We, we need to focus on communicating all the benefits of the system. And this is being translated back into English. And he finishes his commentary by saying, you know, oh, by the way, who are you? Uh, <laughs> because we had never been introduced uh, at the time. So that was my, that was my introduction to Mr. Miyamoto. Um, yeah you know, with that classic ending comment, who are you?
0: <laughs> this year, I decided I actually wanted to like follow hockey a little bit more than just the most casual of casuals, so I subscribed to a service that streams all of the NHL to your television. Uh, the Boston Bruins home opener, I went to watch it and boom, blackout restrictions apply, which I thought was
4: You have a few Miyamoto stories. And
3: one of the ones that stood out to me was during the debate over whether or not to pack in Wii Sports with the Wii. And uh, Miyamoto uh, pushed back pretty hard against that. And uh, it was quite the, it was like one of the biggest points of discussion um, and kind of one of the bigger wins for you.
1: Yeah, it's an understatement to say that Mr. Miyamoto pushed back. Um you know, <laughs> during during the development of the Wii and the Wii Sports um software, you know, again, the, the the goal was, you know, we wanted this system to uh to be attractive not only to the most active players, but to new players and to bring them into the video gaming experience. And we saw Wii Sports as the way to be able to do that because each of these sports made great use of the Wii Remote. Uh, each uh, each sport was known by a global population. Right, people know what golf is, they know what bowling is, they know what baseball is, um, and you know my my recommendation was that we pack Wii Sports in with the hardware. And literally, when I first made this suggestion, um, Mr. Miyamoto said, "You know, Reggie, Nintendo does not give away." software for free. Um, you know, we, you know, you don't understand how hard our developers work to create compelling content like this. Now, you know, fortunately because my SNES came packed in with software, I knew that in fact the company has given away software in the past, but it was against a very strategic objective. And and that was my commentary back to Mr. Miyamoto that you know, by including Wii Sports we would immediately have value in the hardware as the consumers opening it up and, and setting it up, but more importantly, we would have a touchstone piece of software that so many consumers would experience. they would talk about it uh, you know it's what led to we sports being played in bars, being played on cruise ships, being played in retirement homes it, it became uh, you know this universal experience. Um, but he was not happy when I first made the suggestion to the point where on a subsequent visit to Kyoto and the headquarters, the team showed me software that would become weplay Play. So a collection of mini games, you know, and those themselves were fun as well, but they didn't have the connective tissue that We Sports had uh, with, uh, with all of the experiences. So then I proceeded to piss Mr. Miyamoto off again. <laughs> by suggesting that we bundle Wii Play with the Wii Remote. Uh, And he was not happy about that either. But, you know, in the end, in the Americas and in Europe, Wii Sports was packed in uh, with the the Wii proposition. It was not in Japan, which created a bit of a test market. And, you know, it, it was obvious that in the markets, where we sports was packed in that we became much more of a phenomenon uh we sports itself became much more of a phenomenon and we did pack the remote with we play and i think it became the fifth billing fifth best-selling piece of software in uh, in the history of we so that's right. a couple early wins for me and and luckily initiatives that worked in the marketplace
2: i thought this was such a such an interesting story to read because it didn't just highlight your your confidence being in this company uh w- which again you made some pretty big deci- decisions there that had have a lasting impact. We now look at Wii Sports sales, and it's one of the few titles to sell more than 80 million units, right? So huge success. And it was in great part because it was a a pack-in. So it was a really good strategy to get the maximum amount of people to play this game. But it also opened my eyes a little bit about how Mr. Miyamoto thinks about his place in the business. So he's not just the creator, and he's not just looking to have the maximum amount of people play it. He wants people to purchased the game he it ultimately to benefit, the, you know, the, the wealth and the success of the company. I thought that was a really cool story. You
1: know, he, he has a very sharp business mind. And yep. it's interesting because he would always downplay it. You know, we would be in big meetings and he'd be saying, oh, you know, Reggie San, you know, you're the branding expert or you're the commercial expert. But, you know, and then put forward a, a different idea, you know, very sharp, very sharp commercial mind. But you know, so many things that people take for granted—you uh, know—pushing for the Americas to launch hardware first uh, had never been done before. Uh, but we did it for the first time with the DS. Uh, then again with the Wii, um, and so many other platforms uh, that would come later. So uh, you know, a lot of key things that I uh, pushed for, and and you know, fortunately they worked in the marketplace. Yeah, and the we the we play Nintendo... package. Sorry, go ahead, Kat. Is it true
3: that Nintendo <laughs> sorry. Is it true that Nintendo of America pushed for the name Revolution or the name Wii, uh, since it was the original code name? Yeah,
1: you know, we we pushed for a number of different names. Um Revolution certainly was one that we had a lot of heart for. I mean, literally, as I was packing up my office uh last couple of days while I was at uh Nintendo of America, I came across some of the old files, uh, branding and naming files for what became the Wii. There were a number of names, and uh, we were concerned about uh, Wii. And I highlight this in the book in terms of it's a, it's a name that could easily be made fun of. But, you know, NOA took the lead in uh, announcing the name before E3. We We wanted... We wanted all that noise to be done and over with by the time we were unveiling the games and showing the content. Uh, and I think that strategy absolutely worked uh, to make sure that you know, consumers accepted this new system for everything that it was versus just uh you know focusing on the name.
3: Uh something that's I guess this kind of touches on. Sort of the push and pull a relationship that you had with Nintendo, where you had a lot of input on strategic decisions. Uh, you had kind of a direct connection with uh, Satoru Iwata, which I'm sure that we'll discuss in just a, a minute. And it struck me as quite unusual uh, for you to have this much input on everything that was happening, and that Nintendo itself saw this as fairly unusual. But you pushed pretty hard to have this kind of input.
1: So when I was being recruited, it was clear that the company wanted someone strong-willed. They wanted someone with a variety of experiences uh, in different categories. And they wanted someone who would be confident in articulating a point of view. Uh, they probably got more than they bargained for uh, in terms of the way I pushed. But, you know, as you touched on, the, the reason I was able to be successful was absolutely the relationship that I had, not only with Satoru Iwata, but with Shigeru Miyamoto, with with so many of the senior executives at NCL, and the ability early on to build a track record of. Success and ideas that worked, and make no mistake, I had really strong positive advocacy from the long term employees that were at Nintendo of America, you know essentially saying, "Look, you know this person is smart, you know they you know he he has a background with video games, he's got a passion for video games, so I think all of that came together in a really powerful mix that enabled me to have uh, a really strong input um, and a a strong legacy of success while I was there.
3: And you talk a little bit about how the, the workplace culture at Nintendo of America was very different when you arrived and that you had to implement a fair number of changes and kind of overhaul the culture there at NOA specifically. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So just to, to put this in perspective, uh, and I, I highlight this in one of the stories in my book. When I was being recruited, I'm, I'm at a, a lunch with the head of human, re, uh, human resources for Nintendo of America. And again, let, no job offer in hand. First visit to the NOA headquarters, uh, meeting with the head of HR, and I'm asking about people-oriented initiatives. What do you do from a learning and development standpoint? What do you do from uh, the perspective of enabling uh, people to get um, exposure to uh, new and different thinking and and other ways of upskilling the organization? And his answer to me was, Reggie, we don't do that here. And I'm taken aback and, you know, and, and he continues that, you know, we're, we're Japanese parent, our parent doesn't believe in this, therefore we don't implement it. Uh, and I, I literally said, you know, th- this, you know, this is not consistent with my, my beliefs. It is not consistent with what I believe a leader needs to do to develop an organization and to enable it long-term to be successful. And I credit Howard Lincoln, you know, prior um, you know, senior executive with Nintendo of America. At the time, he was uh, chairman for the Mariners. Uh, he had already made the transition away from NOA, but he was still part of my interview panel, and someone that I continue to have a great relationship with. But Howard said, "Look, Reggie, you know, as a senior leader at NOA, you're going to be able to implement plans you believe in, including people oriented plans. And the rest of the organization will watch what you do. And if it's successful, it's going to spread within, uh, within, in a way. And that's exactly what happened, uh, as, uh, as the head of sales and marketing, I put in place a number of, of steps focused on the people focused on the organization. Uh, As I became president, I continued to do more and more of that type of activity. You know, I'm proud that, you know, Kat, we, we didn't revamp the culture. We added elements to the culture that needed to be added. We eliminated elements that needed to be eliminated in order to get a culture that was focused on being proactive a culture that was focused on generating new and different ideas, a culture focused on developing the next group of leaders. It was a very thoughtful approach uh, that that uh, leveraged what was great about what I walked into, but brought in more in order for the organization to be more effective and more successful. And in the end, I, I, I judge my legacy that when I retired, as well as the head of HR uh, who had, I had that initial lunch with, he and I retired on the same day. And as we retired, we promoted people internally into a variety of different roles versus bringing people from the outside. To me, that was a testament that we had uh, done a great job uh, improving and growing the culture at Nintendo of America.
3: uh, I know that you uh, you meant, sorry, Kat. Sorry, uh, I'll give, give you a sec, Seth. Uh, as I'm sure you know, Nintendo's workplace culture has been in the headlines recently because there's been some controversy over Nintendo of America's handling of contractors over the years. And as former head of Nintendo of America and somebody who was kind of an architect of Nintendo of America's current culture, I'm curious if you have a perspective on that.
1: You know, so Kat, at this point, I'm, I'm three years retired from Nintendo of America. And I I can't comment on what's going on today within the company. What I can say is that uh, while I was there, uh, we routinely uh, hired in as permanent employees, uh, contract employees. Uh, We did it uh, repeatedly. And interestingly, if you look at a number of of well-known personalities within Nintendo of America a lot of them started as contract employees you know 10 15 20 years ago so it's it's always been a positive part of the culture to uh, recruit in the very best of the contract employees into uh, into the company so you know I've read the same stories you know this division between contract and full-time employee all I can say is that 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 is not at all uh, the culture that I left as, uh, as I retired from Nintendo.
0: I wanted to ask, you mentioned two books, uh, Innovator's Dilemma and, uh, Blue Ocean Strategy as sort of, uh, sort of inspiring your career at Nintendo. Um, and I'm curious as to if, if there's anyone in the management and leadership space now that you're interested in or inspired by and who, who might that be? If so.
1: Sure. So I'm going to do a little correction. Um, in the book, I, I highlight that we used Innovator's Dilemma and Blue Ocean Strategy as a way to communicate what Nintendo was doing at the time. Meaning, you know, we were well on our path of innovating with the DS and the Wii b- before those books were out. And so they were much more a communication tool or communication a- aid versus an inspiration to the work we're doing. Mm. Um, in terms of you know, people in the space that I follow. Uh, I follow Adam Grant uh and I consider Adam to be a friend he and I met a number of years ago at a conference we continue to stay in touch he was gracious to to write a very uh positive uh recommendation for my book so I I follow his um his readings uh his uh books quite closely uh and ironically he he uh when I first met him you know he he wanted to do uh Wanted to use uh, or potentially use Nintendo in some of his, uh, his uh, writings. And he and I had a conversation about that. It's just, you know, Nintendo doesn't uh, want that type of publicity per se. So it's not something that we, uh, we wanted to do. But I really value his thinking and his, uh, his approach on the people centered leader- leadership space.
2: You guys definitely popularized the uh the the phrase blue ocean in internet uh community circles i remember after that after that speech uh i saw the term everywhere everybody mentioned it and you know other game publishers started to mention it as well um it's a really interesting part um another really interesting part of the history that that i wanted to go back to a bit. And you know, I know Kat, you also want to start talking about Iwata maybe after that, but like the the Twilight Princess reveal that you teased at, you know, is a it was a big thing for gamers to see this game, you know, come out of the shadows as kind of like the Zelda game with the presentation that they were hoped for. And like I think Wind Waker has aged so well and people now go back to it and love the look nowadays, but at the time it wasn't as well received. Can you talk a little bit more about Twilight Princess? Like, did you, when you saw the trailer, did you know you had something big? You obviously had the DS unveiling too, but did you know that this E3 would become
1: legendary? Well, I knew we had something big in the trailer. Uh, Did we believe that the E3 would be legendary? No. Hmm. And 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 Per, you would understand this. The, the, The two E3s prior weren't great. Yeah, they they were pretty uh they were pretty uh low energy <laughs> events. And so our our goal was just let we're gonna take things up a notch, right? We're gonna we're we're gonna set a new high watermark and continue building from there. That was the goal. And and we were fortunate, given all of the great content we had, that we were we were really able to create something uh special and meaningful, not only for the Nintendo fans, but I would argue for the entire industry. The first time I saw the trailer was uh, in Nintendo's treehouse uh, on a weekend uh, as, you know, I I was working hard to learn the business. I was working hard to prepare for E3, um, you know, creating and implementing a range of different initiatives to give Nintendo some momentum. Uh, going into that holiday season when uh, Nintendo DS would be our key volume driver, and so uh, I was invited into the Treehouse to see an early cut of that video. And again, I knew the Zelda franchise. I loved the Zelda franchise. I'd played all the games, including Wind Waker. I was quite aware of you know the the early negative commentary about you know cell shaded uh, Link. And to see that more mature link to see um you know that video for the first time, it it gave me chills, and you know I, with that, I knew we had something that the fans would love, which is why we decided to close that e three with that powerful video. but you know afterwards, hearing that in the audience people were crying and you know all, all of these you know emotions that were happening by fans that were watching it live you know in uh in that uh in that setting it it was tremendously gratifying
2: yeah the conan the barbarian score uh returning from the ocarina of time trailer obviously helped tremendously but it's one of my favorite things to watch on youtube is if you can find a video that was shot in the in the auditorium and you hear the reaction of the crowd to the trailer playing it's just so so amazing i
3: just remember Downloading the video because this is pre-YouTube and downloading it from IGN.com very excitedly. And then when I was watching, I was going, oh my God, this is what I've been waiting for since space world, 1999 or whatever. So that's right. There yeah, it was, I mean, it, it was an amazing trailer. <laughs>
1: it, it It was, I mean, that entire E3 was amazing. And uh, in the book, I, I tell the story, you know, my, my son, uh, my middle son at the time was in his teens, you know, avid game player, avid uh, visitor to, you know, all of the gaming websites, including at the time, some of the smaller sites that weren't on Nintendo's radar. And I remember uh, him calling me and saying, dad, you're famous. You know, and there are all of these memes out there. There are pictures of you with laser beams coming out of your eyes, blowing up the PS2 and the Xbox. And I was shocked and I gave him the assignment of finding all of these sites and sending me pictures. And uh, and it, it became part of, you know, Nintendo's regular process to monitor the internet as our our, Presentation would be happening, and and using that as just a, a fast a fast way to get fan insight as to what uh, what's going on out there in the internet.
2: Yeah, that that E three, you know, for, for people who don't remember all the history, obviously we had Twilight Prime, Princess and DS, but we had Metroid Prime Two was uh, was making its first showing. There was uh, there was a. Bunch of other
3: big, oh, Resident a, Evil 4. Res, Resident Cap Evil company. 4. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, All the and guests. Minish Cap and yeah, just lots of big stuff there. Yeah.
3: It was uh, it phenomenal. And that phenomenal. was also kind of the start of Reggie the mascot, the legend. <laughs> were, were you always intending to be kind of a Nintendo mascot or did this just kind of happen?
1: It, it really just kind of happened. You know, it was, you know, again, um, I was brought in to lead sales and marketing. I was brought in to drive an aggressiveness. Um, It was added benefit that I knew all the content and so I could relate with the fans. It was uh, added benefit that I could present and and speak well um, on behalf of the company. It was added benefit that uh, all of this came together in uh, E3 2004 and uh And that we went from there
0: do you have a favorite meme of yourself
1: um, well the 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 meme that I use the most currently on my Twitter feed is from uh fisamac right that that video uh that we did <laughs> uh as a pre e three announcement, so reggie as fisamac taking off the dark glasses and shooting laser beams that is that's my favorite uh that's my favorite meme your your pin wearing
2: strategies have also become very uh famous obviously over over the years and people always read something into you wearing a pin so even putting on an earthbound pin would just spiral out of control and turn into all these rumors and i would be I would be neglecting our our um our NVC fan group if I didn't ask Reggie. Do you think Nintendo will ever release Mother Three in English, or is that just a game we should we should just walk away from?
1: You know. So look uh, again. Um, I'm three years removed. Who knows what they're thinking about now? Well, what I can tell you is that um, Mr. Iwata and I had a lot of conversations about the Mother series. You know, if you recall, uh, while he was still live, uh, the uh, Earthbound Beginnings was put on the virtual console. So he understood that the fans had a passion for the game and a passion for the series. Um, So I I don't know what they're thinking. I I have to say, for, for me personally, versus doing, you know, Mother 3 as it was initially conceived, I think they'd be much better off doing, you know, let, let me call it a fresh earthbound, uh a fresh RPG leveraging uh you know, Ness and some of the key characters maybe, but I I would want to do something fresh, you know, that speaks to today, that speaks to uh a current population versus um using something that was, you know, gosh, you know, it 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 was finally launched on GBA what in 2006. So at this point, you know, the content is, uh, is a little dated. I
2: I like, I like how you got around answering that, but yeah.
1: (laughs) Come on, Perry. You, 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 you've been around me too many times to know that there, there, you know, there are certain things that, uh, I just can't answer directly. (laughs) That's right.
3: Oh, we've been kind of circling around this, But uh, your relationship with Sotoro Iwata, um, I thought the most illuminating moment in the book was when you said, uh, when Mr. Iwata said, we're both outsiders. Um, And that seemed to be the the common bond that uh, brought you two together.
1: Yeah, so this was over dinner when I had uh, been promoted to president. And um, you know, Mr. Iwata, as as well as really all of the uh Nintendo executives in Kyoto are, are famous for really not you know not uh having dinner uh or outside uh uh experiences with employees because they're they're working until you know fairly late in the evening. You know, Mr. Owada was famous for you know, being in the office until you know 9 o'clock, they would bring in you know uh, a, a very casual meal from a local a local, um, a local uh, convenience store or local restaurant. Um, so he was not one to go out to dinner with um, with other executives. So you know, it, it was very special when he invited me out to dinner, and it was over this dinner that. You know, we we spent a lot of time talking uh, about our personal backgrounds. You know, we we laughed that we both you know at you know in as five, six, seven year olds had read the family encyclopedia front to back. <laughs> um, you know, it was ironic that we had that in our background. And then he did go on to share that you know he he felt uh, that he was an outsider to NCL. You know, having been at Hal Laboratories, having come in to be head of strategy initially for NCL, and then being promoted to be president globally, and uh, we talked about what it's like to be an outsider. Um, And uh, you know, one of the other real insights he shared with me was, you know, Reggie, he said, "You're very powerful. You know, everyone wants to please you, even uh, our teams in." Japan our teams in Europe everyone wants to please you everyone listens to what you have to say so you need to be very thoughtful you need to make sure that you're hearing other people's perspectives before you push hard on a point of view um so that was uh that was very insightful commentary and and uh, you know he and I were incredibly close and you know it really was his passing in 2015 which started my thinking around, you know, what was the legacy that I wanted to leave at Nintendo and how I wanted to make sure that that there would be time for me to do other things, other things that I have a passion for, whether it's around education, whether it's around board service, uh, that I would make sure to have time to do those other things because obviously, and unfortunately he did not. Wow.
0: Well, uh, Reggie, I would love to just sit here and listen to you talk about Nintendo for as many hours as possible. But unfortunately, we are out of time. So, quickly, where can people get your book? So, uh, Disrupting the Game from the Bronx
1: to the Top of Nintendo, you know, available at all retailers. Um, the audio book is narrated by me. Um, so, that was a lot of fun. And it has over an hour of bonus content. Of a conversation that I had with Jeff Keeley, where Jeff and I share a lot of stories. Um, you know, the, the book is specifically structured that with every story there is a business lesson or a business principle. I call it the so what. The conversation with Jeff was much more freeform, uh, you know, a bit of uh, uh you know, Nintendo behind the scenes types of stories. Mm-hmm. But um, available wherever you get your books or audiobooks.
0: Oh, I was going to say, and that is available on May 5th?
1: It's, avail- it's available on, uh, let me get this earbud back in my ear. Uh, it's mm-hmm. available on May 3rd, Tuesday, May 3rd. Oh, sorry. Uh, But I understand some retailers are already breaking street date. Uh, I'm getting Ooh. photos of people who've, uh, who've actually either gotten their book delivered to them or are seeing it up at retail. So this is another thing that would never happen in the video game space. We would, we would <laughs> spank retailers if they broke, <laughs> broke street date. But I, I guess retailers are excited about the book. They're, uh, they're, they're, it's, it's out there in the wild already.
2: Very nice. And then of course, uh, you know, IGN fans can also see Reggie on our show, Rogue Jam, which, uh, Episode two just launched where we talk about uh, three possible uh, contestants for a hundred thousand dollar prize for most. What was the eye poppingly beautiful game? I was eye poppingly beautiful. Yeah. We, uh, we had a lot of fun shooting the the show in LA. Reggie was gracious to come down for an entire week uh, of, of rogue jam. And so look for more episodes on that soon too. It's
1: fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Yeah. Pear loved working with you on that and, and the entire group of judges. Um, and you know, interestingly, it, it, I'm spending more and more time with indie-type content, you know not only as part of uh, Rogue Jam, but in the variety of different uh, things that I'm doing within the industry. I'm playing, playing a lot of, you know published content uh, as well, but playing a lot of indie games, and uh, it, was, it was a very fun week of activity.
0: That's awesome. Reggie, it has been an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for, uh, for spending your time with us.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for all of the, uh, the great time, the great storytelling.
0: Thanks for all the memories. And remember, Nintendo Voice Chat is the only podcast where you can get the thing.